So growing up, my lovely mother utilized some methods that you may and I did consider somewhat unorthodox to ingrain in me an attitude of fiscal responsibility. And I look back now as an adult and I really appreciate what she did for me. She helped me understand the value of money and understand the importance of the difference between want and need. So if I wanted something growing up that I didn't need, and I didn't want to wait until Christmas or a birthday to, to get whatever that item was, in some cases it was the newest pair of Penny Hardaway sneakers with the air pocket in the back and the, maybe even the light up bottoms, or in other cases it might have been a speeding ticket that I didn't want to acquire but did and couldn't pay. All these things, they, they went on a tab, a running list, a tab on the refrigerator of all places. Pretty public for a running list, but it helped myself and my mother and anybody else who happened to walk through my kitchen to know what I had on the tab. You see, this tab started when I was around the age 14 and wasn't fully paid off until I was about 23 years old after I graduated college. At some points, the tab was as low as $15 to $20, and at one point, it got up to about $1,700. The point was, was that if I was going to borrow, if I was going to take money to buy something that I didn't need, as my lovely mother would put it, I better be ready to pay back every last penny. And this is my silly story, and I, I, like I said, I appreciate what my, my mother did for me, and Nowadays, they're actually more general, uh, generous, her my, her my father, than they really probably should be. But this is my story to illustrate something that's really a serious issue today. My goal is to illuminate a strategy that the enemy uses to deceive us, to entrap us, and keep us in darkness. Which is why as part of our discussion, our ongoing discussion that we're having is, you know, on 360 giving... I've been assigned the topic of debt. Friends, when we enter into financial debt, we are actively exchanging some of the freedom that we receive through the blood of Jesus Christ for a set of chains. You see, this set of chains, it weighs us down. It keeps us from serving God, and it, and it keeps us from giving in any of the directions that we've learned about so far in the series. Therefore, it's my prayer tonight that we'll leave this message understanding that a life of financial debt and burden is not the life that we're called to live as Christians. Through faith in Christ, we've been set free from the condemnation of sin. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, debt is another way that we allow ourselves to again submit to a yoke of slavery. Instead, Christians, we must realize that we do have complete freedom in Jesus Christ. Amen? He has paid all of our debts in full. He has given us redemption, which in the Hebrew literally means to buy out of. But this purchase, this atonement, it was not for no reason. It was for a very specific reason. It was so that we, his disciples, could serve him and give him glory. 
So in attempt to address a question that I had for all of us, which is, why enter into debt, especially us Christians? We'll be studying Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. So if you're using the blue Bible in front of you, that's page 791, because I know this is not a book that we frequent too much, probably. I'm going to pray next, and then I'm going to give us a little background on the book. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how fruitful it is, Lord. We ask that you just take this message tonight and that you would take it straight to our hearts. Send your spirit to speak through me, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Haggai was a prophet. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Judea and the temple. And this conquering, this destroying of the temple, it symbolized the spiritual demise and withdrawal of God's blessing and divine protection over the Jews. Then, shortly after this, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree. This decree was to authorize the Jews to return to Judea and begin the rebuilding of the temple. According to the book of Ezra, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, try saying that one five times fast over, brought close to 50,000 Jews back on a long journey to Jerusalem. And when they got back, what they saw must have been extremely disheartening. The, the, the city walls and the buildings and the temple were devastated. So for the next two years, the Jews began to rebuild the temple. And that's, that's kind of what we do when we're broken. We begin to rebuild. And at that point in time, the enemy comes after us. And he did the same thing here. He sent the Sumerian opposition. He, he convinced the Jews to get caught up in self-absorption and ultimately apathy. And they stopped the work that they had started on the temple. And thus began a 16-year period of stagnancy. Until the Lord of hosts chose Haggai to speak truth to the Jewish leaders. And through Haggai, he would talk to the Jewish people and tell them how important and why they should rebuild the temple. And that brings us to where we are today in Scripture. So Haggai uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider, or in some Bibles it actually may say give careful thought to your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, and bring the wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I 
blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So we see twice in this uh, section of Scripture, and actually five times throughout this short book of Haggai, that the Lord says, consider, or give careful thought. So we've got to take that seriously when we see this repetitive command from the Lord. Here he's saying, consider, give careful thought to your priorities in life. God is telling the Jewish people, your priorities are out of whack, they're out of line. You're busy building your own houses and buying your own possessions, while my house lies in ruins, the place where I come to dwell with you and be in relationship with you. Throughout life, we make millions of decisions, don't we? Small, large, everything in between. And our decisions, at any level, are a direct reflection of our hearts and the priorities that lie within them at the point in time that we make the decision. Some of these decisions, they may be as small as what you choose to wear tomorrow and if that will bring glory to the, to the Lord or not. They may be as large as if you're going to enter into an engagement or marriage, a covenantal relationship with somebody who is not as equally yoked as you in the faith. It's amazing, I sometimes hear people say things like, well, most of, the, most of the, the priorities that we have are in line, you know, we both want to have a family, we both like working out, the same movies, same foods, it's great. Well, if that number one priority, which for Christians should be your faith, if that's not in line with your future spouse or significant other, it could have devastating effects in your life when it comes to raising children or managing your finances biblically. And many marriages have felt this devastating effect. In America, financial issues are the number one reason for divorce. And more unnerving is the fact that on a graph, the debt in America trends almost identically to divorce rates. And it's the debt in the average households that's being calculated. You see, we must deeply consider our priorities, especially the top ones. These top priorities, especially the number one priority, become the buoys or the focal points in our lives. They impact every other decision that we make throughout life. Most importantly, they impact who we serve. Matthew 6.24 provides us a very important lesson about determining our first priority. It says no one, not most people, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. He will either be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And a little bit earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'd like to highlight that the Hebrew translation for the word master in Matthew 6 means above all or power over. Therefore, we're going to make a decision. Either we're going to elevate God 
to the number one priority in our lives and give him power over all things, let all things come under him, or we're going to elevate money and possessions and things of the world and ourselves to that spot. The things of the world that will control our hearts and control our minds. In a past sermon, I think Pastor Tim mentioned this, but I did want to reiterate it, that this passage of scripture from Matthew, it doesn't say that you cannot serve God and have money. It doesn't say you can't serve God, you can serve God and not have nice things. What it says is you can't serve God and serve money. Because we love whom and what we serve. 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us about this. It says the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the key word in that scripture is root. The love of money, not having money, is the root of sin in our hearts. It forces forth selfish desires and impulses and causes us to put our bank account over God on the throne. But friends, God can't and he won't tolerate this. In verse 9 in Haggai, he says, when you brought it home, I blew it away. In my limited time on this earth, my limited experience, I've had the opportunity to meet quite a few folks that have been what the world would deem as successful. I like to categorize these folks into two categories, those who are very rich and those who are very wealthy. Because I feel there's a very clear difference. The rich, you can see this root. You can see how the root takes hold of their priorities and their actions and their results. And oftentimes, by looking in their eyes, you can see brokenness and emptiness. But the wealthy, although they have the same level of funds, they don't allow the funds to control their minds and their hearts. And you can see the freedom that this gives them. You can see how liberating that is. And oftentimes, their fruits and their actions and their priorities have to do with giving to others and serving others. And as a result, their reward from the Lord is more peace and more grace. But regardless of how many digits you have in your bank account, how many digits you have in your savings or your 401k, if you are a Christian, we, you, I, must place serving God in the top priority spot. This comes before serving ourselves, which I'll admittedly say is extremely hard. I struggle with it. Because we have this link that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve of sin and self-service. But acting with fiscal responsibility, even if it means keeping a list on our refrigerator of everything that we've purchased, it's a good idea. Because it helps us to keep tabs it helps us keep an eye on what's, in a, what's important in life. It helps us to avoid debt so that we can use the money that God has given us, not that we have earned, 
to serve him and not the enemy. So we know that first we must deeply consider our priorities, but we must also carefully consider our actions and evaluate our fruits or our results. We see in Haggai that the people are constantly consuming, but they find that they're not satisfied. In verse 6, they eat, but they're still hungry. They drink, but they're still thirsty. They earn money, and they spend it so quickly that they've got nothing to show for it. Has anybody in here ever heard of compounding interest? How about a depreciating asset? Well, if there, there's some folks in this room that maybe are not as familiar, allow me to give you a, a brief example or an illustration of what I like to call paying more to get less. So your car is having some issues. And you decide, you know, I've been watching a lot of commercials and I want a new car. I just want one. So you go down to the dealership. You've always wanted a Jeep Cherokee. You love the color red. So you say, give me that one. But you feel good because you chose the standard version, not the one with the 22-inch rim. And you say, look, it's 0% down. All I need to do is be able to afford the monthly payments. What you're not thinking about is probably, or maybe you are, the 2.25% interest rate that's going to be assessed each year annually on that five-year loan or on that 10-year loan. So that $25,000 car turns into a $28,000 car or a $30,000 car. So that's the paying more part. Well, let's talk about the getting less part. The thing with putting our hard-earned money into a brand new vehicle is, is that the second we drive off the lot, it's going to depreciate in value, which means it's going to have less worth. It's going to be we're not going to be able to just sell it in as much if, if we need to. For this reason, insurance companies sell something called gap insurance. And I sell insurance, so if you need a quote for that, let me know after the service. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But there's something called gap insurance, and that's meant to protect the person who purchased the vehicle for the situation that they do drive off the lot, get into an accident, and the value of their vehicle drops. But the problem is, is that only protects the person for a limited period of time, not for the full period of the loan. You see, that's the paying more to get less picture. So before we go and finalize judgment on everybody we know that just want, went and bought a new car, let's take, a, let's take a moment here to really remember what the Lord is instructing us to do in Haggai. He's instructing us to carefully consider our actions and fruits. So the following set of questions, it should help us to do that. It should help us to understand whether or not we're making the right decision before we enter into a borrowing situation or into debt. First is, could I fix my old car? Do I really need a new car? Did I ask God to supply me with a new car before taking it into my own hands? Did I ask a family member if they had a car that I could borrow while mine's getting fixed or buy uh, for lesser of a price or even buy without interest? 
Did I ask the church or the body if somebody had a vehicle that I could purchase before going and making one with interest? Okay, now is the point where you turn to the person who bought the new car and jumps in. Completely kidding, okay? What I'm saying is, is that is all borrowing or financing wrong? No, it's not. Actually, borrowing or financing to purchase something with appreciating value is actually a good idea. That's a fiscally responsible idea. So maybe buying a home that you can afford, a home where maybe you can make an extra payment once a year to pay it down faster, is a good idea because homes over the course of history tend to increase in value. So putting your hard-earned money or the money that the Lord has given you into something that's going to increase in value would be fiscally responsible. So the set of questions, all it's meant to do is encourage us to challenge ourselves to be prudent with our investments. To make wise choices based off of godly priorities instead of selfish choices based off of materialistic ones. However, I will make one serious distinction. No more jokes. That was a bad one. Is that borrowing and not paying back what you borrowed, whether credit card debt that you just ignore the calls from the, the credit agency that's calling you for eight years straight and just keep hitting ignore, so they finally wipe it off and say, forget it, we're not getting the money back. Or a simple loan from a friend or a family member that you're like, man, I hope he forgets about that. Borrowing and not paying back is wrong. It is stealing. And it is sinful in nature. Psalm 37 says the wicked borrow but do not pay back. Ecclesiastes 5 says that it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. In addition, borrowing and spending to the point where we are so strapped that we're unable to give in the kingdom the way that we're called, that's not biblical in nature either. We see this right here in our passage in Haggai. The people spent before giving back to God. It's extremely difficult for us to be generous, willing, and able to give when we're in a negative net worth position. Negative net worth, which means our total liabilities outweigh our total assets. In the years of 2009 to 2012, I was in a position called recruiting manager for farmers insurance in the state of Pennsylvania. This was during what they called the Eastern Expansion, where they were coming into Pennsylvania for the first time ever, and they were hiring business owners to open businesses on loans in the state. The role of my team was to evaluate thousands and thousands of candidates to determine if they were in the position to open a business. And this evaluation process, it included a couple of key things. One of them was an in-depth uh, criminal background check. Another was an in-depth financial background check. But before we would make the investment on the candidate to order the reports which cost money to check the credit and the financial background, we would have them complete what's called a financial worksheet. And the financial worksheet would be a sheet that outlined all of their liabilities, the, how much they owned on their home, the credit card debt, the second mortgage, you name it, the new vehicle purchase. And then it would outline all of their assets, the equity they have in their home, the 401k, what they have in their savings account, any CDs, you get the point. And then it would take those two against each other and it would come up with a net worth at the bottom. 
that would say either this person has a positive net worth for this amount or a negative net worth for this amount or an even picture. And it was really mind-blowing to see how many folks had no understanding or concept of where they stood financially. And even more upsetting was the fact that there was folks who were just completely in denial. They wanted to take on another loan from a major organization when they already had thousands of dollars in debt. You know, it was also a good lesson of don't judge a book by its cover. Because you had people walking in with fancy suits on looking like a million bucks who owed a million bucks. You see, it takes humility to admit that you're in debt. And it takes the grace of God to put forth action steps to get you out of debt. But we must do this if we see that that's where we are so that we can begin and continue to live a life that is honoring to our Lord. To illustrate this point further, let's talk about some specific demographics. Who the enemy is really devouring most when it comes to debt. The age range of 25 to 34, my generation, now boasts the second highest bankruptcy rate in the United States. Over the last nine years, the credit card debt of this group has increased by 55%. And it doesn't get much better for the next generation coming up behind them. Teenagers made up for $189 billion of the nation's spending in 2006. In 2011, this increased to $208 billion in spending. I mean, these numbers are astronomical and mind-blowing. You know, just like we learned last week from Matthew about instilling values of giving and responsibility in our children, if we're not careful, and they're watching us chasing after our own materialistic desires, and they're watching us going into debt to make purchases, we can instill bad habits in our children that they'll carry on for generations. Dave Ramsey, who's a Christian financial expert, says that seven out of 10 people go into debt right out of college. And they do this trying to live the same lifestyle as their parents. Little do they know that it took their parents 35 years to get there. So this is why we have to be the light to each other, Christians, especially our young folks. We have to talk to them about Proverbs 22, 7, which says the borrower is the slave to the lender. 1 Corinthians 7, which says you were bought at a price. Don't become a servant of men. Because the truth is, is that scripture is our only chance to turn this tide. This huge tidal wave of debt that's taking over our nation to keep our loved ones and family members from enslaving themselves to a finance company or a creditor. To come alongside them and guide them lovingly and say, this is what your heart is chasing after. Addiction to spending and consumption, it's really no different than addiction to alcohol or pornography. It all begins with a lack of trust in the Lord to fill a void in our hearts. To understand that that void is the shape of the Lord, not the shape of a new car. 
But like the Jewish people in Haggai, we continue to drink and we're still thirsty. If we're not careful to make choices, decisions that are aligned with right priorities, we're going to be running around to and from looking for a quick fix. And our fruits that we leave behind are going to be nothing other than a deeply dug pit. But remember the beginning of the message, because I know it's getting kind of dark. It's that this is not who we're called to be. We can overcome this materialistic consumption. Our debts have been paid. Jesus is standing right next to us the same way that he was to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He's saying to her and saying to us, if you only knew the gift of God, that if you continue to drink of this water, you will be thirsty again, this water of the world. But the water that I will give in you, it will spring up in you a well of eternal life. Jesus conquered death, friends, and he did it so that we didn't have to be slaves to the world. So that we didn't have to fall into snares like financial debt. The Father sent his Son to free us from this very limiting bondage. Because he knew that this is the only way that we could accomplish Romans 13.8 which is let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Once we've paid our debts and we can take the focus and the pressure that debt creates off of ourselves, we can actually begin to focus on others. And more importantly, we can focus on God. We can spend time going deeper into relationships with each other so that we understand what the true needs are within the body of Christ so that when we do give after careful consideration and prayer, we're giving in a way that's truly going to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I pray that you're starting to see the pattern. That you see that each step flows into the next one. That it starts with our priorities that moves into our actions, that creates our fruits and our results that will either give glory to God and build his kingdom or give glory to ourselves and build our own. I've learned that as Christ's disciples, there's only one thing that we should be doing, and that's building God's kingdom for his glory. I thank the fact that I've had to do this study so that I can understand that further. I've also learned that in coaching and, and um, managing my staff at work, I hate that word manager, let's use the word coach, that it's often important to provide the why behind why you're asking somebody to do something. There's just something in human nature that when we tell somebody to do something without giving them the why, they're like, mm. Because they don't really trust it. They're not sure why you're asking them to do it. They want to know, what are you asking me to do, and why are you asking me to do it? And it goes all the way back with being a kid. Why, 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 right? And sometimes as a parent, you just say, because. Well, Jesus and God sometimes will say, because. But in this case, after 16 years of stagnancy, he gives the Jewish people the why behind why they need to build the house. In verse 8, he says, so that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. 
You see, the Jewish people, they just don't realize that the Lord is pushing them to rebuild the house so that he can renew his promise and his covenant with them. They're more focused on themselves than their relationship with God. And the Lord, he wants to bless them so abundantly. He wants to bless them. And more specifically, through them, through the house of David, he wants to bring forth Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to save the whole world if they would just be obedient and rebuild the temple. We're very similar to the Jews in this picture, aren't we? We're finite humans with limited minds. We struggle to see the big picture. We struggle to see what God is doing all around us and what God is trying to do through us in the body. So let's try our best here at the the end to to capture a little bit more of the big picture. What do you say? Let's let's really interact with this here at the end. I'm asking you to, to, to follow along in your bulletins here towards the end and interact with this. My first question is, is, is the Lord asking you to go up to the hills? Is he asking you maybe to put together a budget? To revise your existing financial strategy? Or maybe it's just cut out some frivolous spending on going out to dinner all the time or, you know, HBO. I know for me this part was very convicting for a number of reasons. It's been close to a year since I've put together a budget. And I've got a daughter on the way, as you heard. Also, my wife and I both admit, and we've talked about this a number of times, that we just eat out way too much. That is our entertainment, but it's a little bit out of control. So let's think about these things. What is the Lord asking us to do? What active plan is he telling us to to revise? The next directive in verse 8 is bring the wood. So what in your life represents the wood? What is the Lord streaming in your mind and your heart throughout this series when when we're talking about these financial topics? What is he showing you that you could be using better for his glory in your life? Maybe it's your handyman skills. Maybe it's teaching abilities or some unique experience. But the key question is, and what it boils down to is, are we giving at the level that the Lord has called us to give? And only you know that. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So once we figure it out, once we figure out what this action is that we have to do, we've got to bring the wood. So take a mental note, write down in your bulletin whatever it is that you've got to do to bring the wood. But keep in mind that once you move to action, remember what happens, happened when the Jews moved to action on the temple, who showed up? The enemy. So once you get ready to actually bring the wood and you start bringing it, he is going to show up. So be prepared for that. And then finally, We have to steadfastly plug the gifts that we have, the wood that we're bringing, into the body of Christ. And we have to do this in order to build the house. So where is it that you're called to get building? 
Are you called to get building at the Hope Center in Africa that Cornerstone has been working so diligently on? Are you called to get building at Riverside on Monday nights? Are you called to get building at the Children's Ministry or at the New Counseling Center next door? Where are you called to get building? Brothers and sisters, this is who we are in Christ. We are not enslaved, indebted prisoners. We are, as Galatians 5.1 says, set free. We are redeemed. We're disciples with the faithfulness to set right priorities, to understand how to put wise plans into action, and to build God's kingdom for his glory. This is our calling. So in closing, I want to tell you about uh, a sermon that I watched. It was a Southern Baptist church, and there was a, a preacher who had come over from Africa who was known for giving these fascinating sermons. Just so powerful, the messages that he would give that really moved people. And he was at this church, and he walked up to the front, and everybody was expecting this super sharp, powerful sermon. Instead, he quietly walked up and sat down at the piano. He began to play the piano really softly. And as he played, he began to whisper the words. Along with the tune. And then he began to play a little bit louder. And again, he was saying, I will. I will, as he played. And then he played louder yet to the point where he was really jamming away. And he's, and he's saying louder and louder, I will. And he invites the church to join in him. And everybody's now saying, I will, I will. And everybody's saying it in unison and starting to stand up, I will, I will. And the spirit was just moving in the room. It felt like the church was going to explode. And then he stopped. And he walked back up to the front of the room silently. And he put his hands up to the Lord and he said, Father, you have heard our answer. Now ask us your question. Ask us what we are willing to do for your kingdom, how we can give you glory. Because our response is, we will. We will. We will. Amen?